Ahoy Authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Watts, a StoryGrid certified editor dedicated to helping you develop self-editing skills and write a better story. If you want to learn more about the podcast, read the show notes, and grab this week's editorial mission, visit writership.com slash podcast. Welcome to episode 134 of the Writership Podcast. Today, I'm talking about crisis questions, the dilemmas within scenes and your stories that force characters to decide and take action. This is the third in a series of episodes on scene elements to help you craft and evaluate scenes that work. Okay, so before we get started... Today, I want to talk about NaNoWriMo, which is right around the corner, and to check in to see if you'd like to hang out with some other people who are taking on the challenge of writing 50,000 words of fiction during the month of November. You can come join the writership community on Slack. We have channels for regular accountability check-ins, but also for NaNoWriMo so we can support each other in reaching our writing goals. I'm participating in NaNoWriMo this year, and if you are and could use some help staying focused and have a place to ask questions and celebrate your successes, visit writership.com slack. I want to get right into the heart of the episode today with a quote from Robert McKee. Characters make spontaneous decisions each time they open their mouths to say this, not that. In each scene, they make a decision to take one action rather than another. But Crisis with a capital C is the ultimate decision. The Chinese ideogram for Crisis is two terms, danger, opportunity. Danger in that the wrong decision at this moment will lose forever what we want. Opportunity in that the right choice will achieve our desire. No pressure, right? Well, actually, yes, because McKee also says the dilemma confronts the protagonist who, when face-to-face with the most powerful and focused forces of antagonism in their life, must make a decision to take one action or another in a last effort to achieve their object of desire. In other words, in those moments of crisis, They experience the maximum pressure that they've experienced. And of course, this shows us who they really are. With crisis questions and and dilemmas in mind, let's turn to today's submission from Jerry Dawson. Meteor is a science fiction story of about 46,000 words. And here's a quick synopsis. When a NASA project causes an extrasolar meteor to hit a small Pacific island, unexplained deaths on the island are blamed on the agency. They send in an expert to dispel the rumors, but instead he discovers that the meteor introduced alien life that is rapidly evolving and killing everyone on the island. Okay, so that's uh, that's to uh, whet your appetite for the submission today. Thanks so much, Jerry, for sharing your story with us. 
This is the prologue and first chapter from Meteor. Prologue. Joey pushed the canvas flap aside and stepped out of his family's small house as the first rays of the sun were beginning to peek over the horizon. He liked his time alone in the mornings when he could run around shirtless and shoeless before his mother called him inside for his morning lessons. He usually ran down the hillside to the small beach to the east to see what new sea life the ocean had delivered to him that morning. Some days he walked through the woods, down toward the center of the island, and occasionally he stayed in the village, searching the sky above for constellations he recognized and hoping to spy a shooting star. His mother told him that they brought good luck to the first person to see one. That's what he was doing today, walking in a slow circle with his head tilted back, taking in the last of the night's view of the tens of thousands of stars that were still visible this far from electricity. There goes one! But no, it was still there, so it must be an airplane or something. But an airplane wouldn't show up out of nowhere, and an airplane doesn't look like that anyway. This light was getting bigger and brighter, a lot brighter. This wasn't like any shooting star he had ever seen before. This light was coming right at him. He ran back to his house screaming, Dad! The blinding light hit the trees in a thunderous explosion that knocked him off his feet. He felt the ground shaking violently as he watched a huge fireball rising to the sky from just over the hilltop. His father appeared beside him and picked him up onto his feet. What was it? Did they drop a bomb? Another man from the village walked up. They know we're here. Why are they testing bombs? It wasn't a bomb, Joey said. It came from the sky. Of course it came from the sky. Where do you think a bomb would come from? No, from way up in the sky, Joey insisted. From the stars. It looked like a shooting star that kept getting brighter and brighter. I'm going to go look at it. You stay here, his father said, as he and the other man began walking toward the fire. But Joey passed them both, running at top speed, eager to find the good fortune that had befallen him. Chapter 1. 74 Days Earlier. White House Situation Room. We estimate the object to be approximately 140 meters in diameter, 500 metric kilotons. The best estimate we can make of its trajectory brings it within 600,000 kilometers of the Earth. So what's the big deal? Why are we here? This from the president's chief of staff. 600,000 kilometers isn't even close. It's not much farther away than the moon, sir, and allowing for an error of only 0.1 degree puts the Earth inside its cone of trajectory. So is it going to hit us or not? Don't come in here telling us about errors and cones of trajectory. Tell us what's going to happen. 
Based on our current data, there is a 40% chance that it will come inside the orbit of the moon. Our estimate of the object's trajectory increases in accuracy as we collect more data, but that takes time. And if we wait until we know precisely what its path will be, we will be out of time to react to that information. So you're telling us that this thing out there is probably not going to hit the Earth, but there is a small chance that it will, and if we wait until we know for sure, then we won't be able to do anything about it. Exactly, sir. What could you do about it anyway, even if you knew today with 100% certainty that it was going to hit the Earth? Another man spoke up. We have a plan. All eyes turned to James Beale, the administrator of NASA. Blue Sky has a rocket already constructed that we can use to intercept the object. It's currently scheduled to launch in six months for another mission, but we believe that we could get it ready to launch in one month. Our plan is to launch this rocket from Canaveral. It can intercept the object two weeks after launch, which is only two weeks before the object would potentially strike the Earth. If all goes as planned, we can slow it down enough to allow the Earth to safely pass beyond the object's cone of trajectory. The chief of staff spoke again. So what you're suggesting is we divert this rocket from a scheduled mission to use it to crash into this thing to slow it down enough that it won't hit the Earth. Yes, sir. Why just slow it down? Why not knock it out of the way or blow it up? Because it's coming straight at us at 70 kilometers per second to try to hit the side of the target traveling at that speed to knock it out of the way would be impossible. And blowing it up, if we could even do that, would just send a lot of smaller objects at us instead of one big one. If we hit the front of it with enough momentum, we can slow it down enough to allow the Earth to safely pass by. And we can do that, but only if we act right now. If we delay by even one day, then the decision may be made for us. James, the president said, what mission is this blue sky rocket scheduled for now? Military communication satellite launch. This is the first of a four-launch mission. Blue Sky has already started construction of the second rocket. This would set back the mission by six to nine months. The president sighed and looked down at his lap and thought, how much is this mission going to cost? Just based on the costs of the satellite missions, it would be in excess of $100 million dollars. You know your budget is being cut next year. I've heard the rumors, Mr. President. If you had to choose between this mission or the next one scheduled after the communication satellites, which would you choose? Because you may have to make that choice. There's no question, Mr. President. I would choose this mission. Without the success of this mission, the discussion of any future missions could be rendered moot.
Okay, thanks again, Jerry, for your submission. You have a lot of really fun dialogue in this submission with different types of conflict in each scene. And it's interesting to see the way the characters interact with the dialogue, with the conflict. And of course, it's an interesting setup for a problem. We also have, I want to point out, and this will come into the discussion later on, we have a scene, uh, we have, a, a, in essence, a nonlinear plot because we are getting something that happens in the, you know, in story time future. In other words, the prologue is happening 74 days after the, the scene in chapter one. So that presents some interesting situations, both for the global story, which I'm not going to talk about today, but in terms of the individual scene and the elements that you might include there. Okay, so let's talk about crisis questions. And before we look at that in relation to the submission, I want to provide a clear explanation of what they are and how they work. And before that, here's a quick recap of the five commandments of storytelling and how they are connected. Okay, because the crisis question is the third of the five commandments of storytelling. So the five commandments of storytelling come from fundamental, basic, dramatic structure that was described by Aristotle and refined by people like Gustav Freytag, Robert McKee, and Sean Coyne. Sean has also made the connection to the Kubler-Ross change curve, which describes the phases people move through when they experience grief related to change. So what does all that mean? Well, it means that stories are about change, and the five commandments provide us a structure that mimics the way that people metabolize change, at least ideally. Okay, so most stories open with a protagonist minding their own business when an inciting incident comes along and upsets the status quo. The inciting incident, which I talked about in episode 132, creates a desire and goal to arise within the mind of the protagonist. As they pursue the goal, obstacles and tools arise, which we call progressive complications. And I talked about those in episode 133. Now, an unexpected event or turning point progressive complication happens, and that forces the protagonist into a dilemma, which we call the crisis question. The protagonist decides between the two options in, you know, within the dilemma and then acts on that decision in the climax. Then consequences flow from there in the resolution. So that's how the five commandments of storytelling work in your story, but they also work in the smaller units of story, including your subplots, acts, sequences, and most important for our discussion today, scenes. So again, if you remember back to the progressive complications episode in number 133, the turning point complication forces the character into a dilemma. And that dilemma in the form of a question is what we call the crisis. 
the character has exhausted every reasonable option to achieve their goal, right? Whether it's the scene or the entire story, except the two presented, the two options that is presented by the dilemma. This is the character's last attempt to achieve their goal or to deal with the impossibility of attaining it. There are two types of crisis questions, and the dilemma your character encounters should come in one of these two forms. The first is a best bad choice. That is just what it sounds like, a choice between two really unpleasant things, or, or worse, of course. Taken to the end of the line, we often think of Sophie's choice, a story in which a woman must decide which of her children will live. How could a person make that choice? That's just, it's, it's too horrifying to contemplate. But of course, that's one of the reasons we go to story. We face difficult decisions in our lives all the time, though thankfully, it's usually nowhere near that heartbreaking. And we want lessons for life about how to choose. So that's best bad choice. We also have irreconcilable goods choices. Now, this can appear as two good options that are mutually exclusive, that is, the character can't choose both, or a choice that's good for the character but bad for someone else. For example, in Pride and Prejudice, Darcy faces an irreconcilable goods crisis about whether to intervene on Lydia, Lydia's behalf after she runs away with Wickham. If he avoids the situation, his reputation and status remain intact, and that's pretty good for him. But it's not so good for Elizabeth. If he saves Lydia from her mistake, he helps Elizabeth and the other Bennett girls, but there's a risk to his reputation. Sometimes it comes down to a matter of perspective. So I don't want you to obsess too much about whether it's a best bad choice or a choice between irreconcilable goods. Um, we could frame Darcy's choice as being a best bad choice, but the label won't change the significance of the decision that he faces. He can't have it both ways. And it's a difficult decision to make. So whether you characterize it as a best bad choice or a choice between irreconcilable goods, remember that it can't be a simple choice between good and evil because that's not a real dilemma. The, the character should, at least inside, be somewhat torn up about it at different levels, of course, because, you know, in the scene level, it's not going to be as big a crisis as it is for the entire story level. The next thing to think about is how relevant the dilemma is to the inciting incident and specifically to the goal that arose from the inciting incident. The dilemma could be a choice between giving up the goal or going for it, and it could be two different options related to pursuing it or two different options related to giving it up. But in some way, the dilemma should relate back to the goal they've been pursuing. The next consideration is specificity. 
So we can learn a lot about a character from how they respond in these critical moments. And making the dilemma specific to the character makes for more compelling scenes and, of course, stories. So how do you make it specific? By showing what's at stake for the character. Okay, here's an example. Consider the dilemma of a whistleblower in a cigarette company during the 1970s or 80s. They risk their jo- losing their job and future employment. If a character is single, independently wealthy, or has marketable skills that he can apply outside the industry, then the character might not agonize over the decision to speak up about the harmful effects of cigarette smoke. But if you give that character a family, a mortgage, and no other skills, it suddenly becomes a more difficult choice. The stakes are not only about the actual risks, which we might say are objective, but what it means for the character or the subjective aspect of it. For some people, their own death or the death of a loved one is the worst thing that could happen to them. For others, it might be moral disgrace or failure that would be the worst thing that could happen to them. So you might need to do a little exploration to figure out what your character really values, um, especially over in the, the crisis for the entire story. Within scenes, it's a little less critical, obviously. Those are smaller crises, as I mentioned. Another interesting thing is that the reader doesn't have to agree with the character that a certain value is most important. Like some people might say, your job for a cigarette company can't come above the lives of the people who are, you know, who die from the harmful effects of cigarette smoke. Um, Other people might be more sympathetic and understand that it's really hard to get by in a certain economy if you don't have a job, right? Um, So, but that doesn't really matter because we all know what it feels like to risk something important. So if you are very specific about the stakes and what they mean to the character, we can relate to them, even if we don't happen to agree with what they're valuing. We just need to know what's on the line and what it means. And that makes for really powerful scenes where your characters, I mean, where your readers relate to the characters and care about how things turn out. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you don't have to put everything on the line for your character in every scene. But within the acts of your story, so act one, or the beginning hook, act two, the middle build, and act three, the ending payoff for a standard story, you want to have those stakes grow from beginning to the end, from the beginning to the end, and certainly within your story. You want the final, the big crisis of the story to be the biggest one. The next thing to consider is making your crisis question dramatically obvious. Your dilemma should be apparent. This doesn't mean that it has to be explicit, though sometimes it will be. And we have two, within the two scenes of the submission today, we have um, one crisis that's implicit and one that's explicit. So you can kind of see how that works. Um, 
it's rare actually for them to be for the crisis question to be really explicit unless we're given access to the character's thoughts but the context or the subtext should make it clear that the character has to decide between two primary options and that it's not an easy decision now sometimes another character will serve as serve the role as a herald and will say it out loud. Um, A great example of this is in Master and Commander when the sailing master, John Allen, he often fills the role and names the options or identifies them and shows us what they mean. So how do you take this from your scene to your story? Your scenes don't exist in a vacuum, and they should connect to the primary story or your global story spine. The dilemma within each scene should affect the character's scene goal, but it should also be related to the global story, objects of desire, or what the character needs and wants. Whatever the character decides should bring them closer to or further from the story level goals. So what are the crisis questions in today's submission? This is when it's useful to do a quick scene analysis. We actually do have two scenes within the prologue and chapter one, so I'll look at them separately. Let's tackle the prologue first. We answer first a series of four questions to identify the story event. We ask, first, what are the characters literally doing? Joey is walking around looking at stars in the sky when a bright object falls and lands on the island. The second question is, what is the essence of what the characters are doing? This is the subtext, whereas the literal action from question one is what's happening on the surface. So it helps to know um, <laughs> more about how the story unfolds and you know some more things about the global story but my best guess is that joey wants to get to the bottom of what that bright light is the third question is what life value has changed for one or more of the characters in the scene well joey starts out having a pretty ordinary day and it turns into quite an extraordinary day so in this question we're looking at right? You could throw in the kitchen sink if you want. The, the point is to cast a wide net for your story value so that you know, so that you know that you're getting the most important one. This always depends on what the overall genre is, but given the way the story begins, it's a pretty safe bet that this science fiction story is, uses the action, thriller, or horror genres. And in any of those cases, the basic life value at stake is life and death. Therefore, I would add safe to threatened in the spreadsheet. Okay, so after we've developed the story event, then we look at the five commandments. The first is, what is the inciting incident? Joey sees a bright light in the sky that didn't act like a shooting star. This appears to be what we call a coincidental inciting incident. As far as we can tell, there's nothing to suggest that the aliens have arrived to liven up Joey's day. 
The second of the five commandments are the progressive complications and turning point. Well, let's focus on the turning point here. And it's when the dad tells him to stay. Now, the reason we want to focus on that is because that turning point is the thing that forces the crisis. So the third commandment is the crisis. And it comes from, like I said, it comes from that turning point when his dad tells him to stay. So in that moment, Joey has the option to follow his dad's instructions or get a closer look at the explosion because he wants to get to the bottom of what that's all about. Um, so I would label this as a irreconcilable goods crisis, but as I said, you could easily flip it and look at it the other way as a best bad choice. So what is the climax in this story? Well, Joey's curiosity gets the best of him, and he runs toward the site of the explosion. Then next we would ask, what is the resolution? Okay, so this is where I'm going to go back to the nonlinear um, structure that we have for this story. We don't actually get a resolution in this scene. We don't find out what the thing is, or we don't know what conclusion Joey reaches after he gets close, or anything that happens there, right? But that's because we have this nonlinear story, and the prologue is 74 days after chapter one. So Jerry's using this form of narrative drive that we call dramatic irony, and I'll say a little more on that in a moment. But to understand the missing resolution here, we need to understand the difference between scenes and chapters. Scenes are units of story, as McKee explains it. A scene is an is an action through conflict in more or less continuous time and space that turns the value-charged condition of a character's life on at least one value with a degree of perceptible significance. That's a mouthful. But in essence, what we have, the scenes are a unit of story where the character experiences change through conflict and action. Chapters are units of a book through which you control pacing and other elements of the reader's experience. So chapters related to books and reader's experience, scenes are related to units of story. Now the author probably had a very good reason for not showing us what Joey finds just now. And that brings me back to narrative drive. Narrative drive is its own big topic, but it relates to the information that the reader and characters have relative to one another, and the questions and emotions that pull the reader through the story. Anne Holly and I talked about narrative drive in episode 108 in the context of the first scene of Mike Ward's story, Esperanza. Now, dramatic irony happens when the reader knows more than the character and is pulled through the story out of concern for the character. So if we're wondering what happens to Joey and the other people on earth, we're going to have to read through all the stuff that happens from 74 days earlier to find that out. Mystery, which is another form of narrative drive, 
happens when the character has more information than the reader, and the reader is pulled through the story by intrigue. So purely what's going to happen. Suspense happens when the character and reader possess the same amount of information, and the reader is pulled through the story by both intrigue and concern for the character. What the, what the author has done here is they have set us up with dramatic irony and they've helped us to, you know, like get connected to Joey and care about what happens to him and his family. Um, so we keep reading out of concern for him. So that's, that's the scene analysis for the prologue. Let's look at chapter one. But the story event, what are the characters literally doing? They're deciding what to do about an object that is heading in the direction of Earth. What is the essence of that, of what the characters are doing? My best guess is that the NASA team members want the president to agree to their plan. What life value has changed for one or more of the characters in this scene? Well, Based on what's on paper, what we have is the president and staff and his staff are in the dark in at the beginning of the scene, um, really in the moment before the st- scene begins, and then are aware of the problem and the magnitude of it by the end. So which life value is most relevant to the global genre or which life value is the one that we would put in the story grid spreadsheet? Well, again, assuming this is an action thriller or horror story, it should be a value related to the continuum of life and death. As written, it looks like unaware to aware that the problem exists and the magnitude of it, which we would represent as moving from negative, because if you don't know that there's a problem, you can't do anything about it, to a positive, which is once you're aware, right, you can choose to do something if there are options available. Thank goodness in this case there are. <laughs> um, so in the f- the, for the five commandments, what is the inciting incident? Well, the president and staff are informed of the object heading in the direction of Earth. Um, and I would say this is a causal inciting incident. The purpose of the meeting is to inform the, the president and get a decision, get him to agree to the plan. What are the progressive complication? What is the progressive complication turning point in this scene? To me, this is when they identify they have a plan. That they, you know, there is a plan. A plan exists. So from that, we get the crisis, a best bad choice. But again, you might see it differently to use the rocket or not. Either they forego the opportunity to save the Earth and bank on the object missing, or they delay the mission for the military communications satellite. So I had a question as I was reading this, is this really a choice? It's, it's a close call. Um, some extra context, I think, would provide more meaning to make that clear. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. 
Okay, so what is the climax? Well, we don't actually find out in the submission what the president decides, though we know what the NASA administrator recommends. This could be implied agreement, but again, it's t- to me, it's not clear. Now, there could be some reasons for this, right? There could be, it could be uh, chapter division, splitting up elements of a scene, which is totally legitimate, or it could be um, the size of the submission and the, the writer didn't want to submit more. What's the resolution? Again, we don't get this in the scene because we don't know what unfolds after a decision is made. But again, that could be for pacing reasons or it's highly likely that the resolution appears on the very next page. So what does this mean for these scenes and what would be the next steps for Jerry if he wanted to revise them? Well, my, my caveat that I like to say is that these suggestions depend on whether I've read the scene the way the writer intended. When I work with a client, I read, you know, of course, the whole story and we talk about their intentions and I have a lot more information, background information about the story. So here, if I've read it wrong, you may want to consider if your intention is making it onto the page, but always remember that I'm reading a small portion of the story. And no matter who's giving you feedback on your story, consider it, but weigh it in light of what you know about your intentions. With that caveat, I would consider whether moving the climax and resolution to within chapter one would make it stronger. Would it be stronger to actually resolve the scene problem within the chapter or Um, because it seems like a compelling enough problem, like we have a plan, the reader is going to be hooked. The decision wouldn't necessarily cause the reader to say, okay, I'm good. I'll put this down for now. I would also consider making the stakes more specific related to the crisis question and making that clearer. Um, And again, I'll say more about that in just a moment. So both scenes have most of the elements of working scenes, with the exception of the resolution in the first, which may be intentional, and the climax and resolution for chapter one, which might also be intentional. If we had a climax and resolution in which the president agrees, we might We might alter the life value just a little bit. We might go from having no plan to having a plan, which would be a positive shift. It's a fairly minor adjustment, but just something to think about. The inciting incidents in both scenes are really clear, as is the goal that arises from them. The complications and crisis questions in both scenes are related to the scene goals and appear to be related to the story as a whole. So that's all working. Now, the crisis in both scenes is dramatically obvious. Notice that in the prologue, it's implied. Joey doesn't say, hmm, should I listen to my dad or run? He doesn't say or think it, right? We can just tell that those are the options we can tell from the context, and we can clearly see what he does. Um, in chapter one, uh, in that scene, it's more explicitly stated. They're, they're actively talking about the dilemma that they're facing. 
So in terms of specificity of the stakes and what they mean, I think the prologue is pretty clear. If Joey's dad is a typical dad, we have no reason to uh, suspect that he's not. He's going to be upset. There are going to be some consequences uh, for his son taking the risk of running toward the site of the explosion. I think the chapter one scene could use some more context so we understand what's at stake when, you know, when considering delaying the launch of the military satellites. On its face, the choice seems pretty clear. Now, there is the issue of the, of the budget, but we learn that if they don't act right away and the object crashes to Earth, there isn't going to be a need in the future for satellites. There won't be any question. So in that way, it seems kind of like a no-brainer. So what we might say is, you know, like balancing it against the, is it a low risk that the object's going to hit Earth? Is there a current political or military conflict that requires those communication satellites? Are the current ones malfunctioning? These are just um, some examples, but um, of, of potential things to balance against it. Um, against it, because as I said, as written, it appears like a a really clear choice, um, but again, in the co- you want to look at it in the context of the entire story. So I think that the scenes in general could use more context and setting, particularly chapter one. And you've got the word co- count, um, the room in your word count to to add more to these scenes. Um, when we're looking at chapter one, we know that they're in the situation room in the White House, but we don't have a picture of the room or how many people are there except by who's speaking. And we don't know where people are are in relation to one another that would give us a sense of the power dynamic at work as well as the subtext. So the key to finding a balance with setting is to understand that the reader will have a general idea of what the average beach or the average high-level government office looks like. We would, the reader will also understand the objects that might be present and the way people dress in those situations. So you don't necessarily have to mention the typical things that you would see in those in those settings you want to show them what's unique about the place objects and the people within the scene so more specifically you want to filter this information through either the point of view character or the narrator as the case may be and reveal what they notice because that again makes it more specific Um, and gives the reader a different picture of the setting, which changes how they view what's happening. I would also recommend identifying the speakers in the chapter one scene um, more often with either dialogue tags or descriptive beats and showing again where they are in the hierarchy to clarify what's happening beneath the surface. It all feels very like everybody's just talking about what they're really talking about, and there's not a lot of subtext going on, which is fine. You don't have to, um, you don't have to have a ton of subtext in every scene, but you want to be able to tell us 
if or show us if there is anything at work underneath the surface. Um, We don't really have a status quo before the announcement, but that's not necessarily a bad thing in in this, which is the true opening scene or the inciting incident for the story, which is likely an action thriller or horror story. Still, you might consider if a short runway before the announcement could help the reader become attached to one of those characters in the scene before we dive into the conflict. So overall, the action in the scenes is clear, the dilemmas the character face are clear as well, and we can identify all the story events. The dialogue, again, is really great, and we have a lot of great conflict going on. We can see where the story is headed from here. So those are all really great things that are working in favor of this story. So now that we've kind of done the ins and outs of crisis questions and applied it to our submission, now I have an editorial mission for you. And if you've listened to the last two episodes, you probably know what this is going to be. I want you to gather crisis questions. So as you read or watch stories, identify the dilemmas that your characters, that the characters face after the turning point progressive complication. Can you identify whether they are best bad choices or irreconcilable goods choices? Are they relevant, specific, and dramatically obvious? So I want you to compile a list of those crisis questions from the stories and scenes that you read and watch to use as you plan, draft, and revise scenes for your own stories. And within the context of your own life, think about the dilemmas that you've faced. Look at the small ones and the large ones, as well as best bad choices and choices between irreconcilable goods. Think about how you felt when you were forced to decide. How did you decide? Like what method did you use? And I want you to keep a list of those personal crisis questions, as well as the circumstances that created them, then as a regular exercise, write about them. Because your reactions and emotions will inform what your characters think, say, and do in analogous circumstances. And again, that's what we really mean when we say write what you know. As we wrap things up, I offer deep gratitude to Jerry Dawson, today's author, and of course our Patreon crew for supporting the podcast. If you enjoy the show and would like to show your support, visit patreon.com slash writership, where you can gain access to the Q&A calls and the deep scene dives for the cost of one to two cups of coffee a month. If you'd like to show your support in other ways, tell a writing friend about the podcast or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your scene critiqued on the podcast, visit writership.com slash submissions. That's it for episode 134. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast.